Praise the Lord. Oh, there we go. Got, got volume. How y'all doing? No. <laughs> Just had to say that. I don't know why. <laughs> Isn't that terrible? Oh. No, it's, you know, it's, it's okay when you haven't seen somebody in a long time, you know, you go, hey, man, how are you? You know, I mean, you know, but... Good evening. Hello. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. I forgot my little thing. Clicker. No, wait a minute. We're not doing anything. That's right. That's why I, <laughs> I just remembered. Oh, my goodness. I know. Well, I, I didn't have time because the way things fell with uh, our family day and then Mother's Day, it threw us a week off, uh, definitely a week off. I'd already known about Mother's Day. And so I, I didn't want to go any further because of graduations and, and all kinds of other stuff. So I needed to put this together in kind of one lesson. It's three separate lessons, but put it in one, like an overview. And so by the time I finished doing that, it was about quarter to five this afternoon. And I said, there's no way I'm going to even try and put slides together. So... But what we will do is at the end, we will do question and answers like I always do. And since I'm doing an overview, there may be some questions of things you don't, you know, that I don't touch on or maybe I just touch on lightly. So we'll, we'll give an extended time for that if necessary. So um, anyway, so let's just go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you for your word and we thank you, Father, for the blessing that comes that your word tells us at the beginning of Revelation and then at the end, there's a special blessing to those that study the prophecy herein, Lord God. So we pray that the Holy Spirit who unveiled this to John would unveil it to us, Lord, and, and, and open the scriptures and open our hearts and open our minds. And again, Lord, let it not be as the scripture speaks of that we took when the man took, John took the scroll and ate it, it was like honey. Let us not be content with having knowledge that's good, but Father, let it digest. And when it says it became bitter in his belly, the weightiness of your word in these last days is so important. And so God, we just pray, speak to us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so last time, let me, let me go up here for a second. And um, we, we finished the last time all the way down here to the end of the tribulation period. So let's kind of recap a little bit. Um, the, the rapture of the church has taken place. Um, the judgment seat of Christ has taken place for the saints who are caught up. And they stand before God and give an account of their life. Um, the marriage or the wedding of the lamb to the bride has taken place. And all of that is taking place during this seven-year period of time known as Jacob's trouble or in the New Testament as the tribulation. And remember, the last half of the tribulation is known as the great tribulation because of the intensity of the death and destruction and everything else that's taking place during that time. 
So now we come, let me, let me go back up here again. So now we're coming to the end of this seven-year period, okay? And we're going to look at the fact, this is when Christ comes back, and I'm going to mention what's going to take, what is necessary for Christ to come back. And there is something necessary for Christ to return to earth. There's nothing necessary for him to take his church out. But there is one thing necessary, and, that is, and, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. And when he comes back, there's a period of time here. Now, we speak of the millennial kingdom, millennial meaning a thousand years, millennium meaning a thousand years. But I'm going to show you in Daniel that there's, it speaks of the fact that there's an extra 75 days that takes place at the beginning between Christ coming back and this thousand-year kingdom that takes place. And then we're going to see at the end of the thousand years, something's going to happen. And, and then we're going to talk about this point, the great white throne judgment or the second resurrection as the Bible speaks of it. And then the ushering in of the new heavens and the new earth. So I know it's a lot of material. And um, the study guides and, and, and things like that have very detailed information in that. But this is what we're looking at. So we come to the end of the tribulation period. And, and Jesus Christ is coming back. It is, this is what is known as the second coming. The rapture of the church is not the second coming. Um, the first coming, Christ came to earth, right? I mean, literally came to earth. So the second coming is Christ coming again, literally to earth. Whereas the church is going to be caught up with him in the sky. And so this will only take place, the second coming of Christ will only take place when the leaders of the nation of Israel repent for the sin of their ancestors. What was the sin? It's singular. Uh, I, in fact, I think I've already taught a lesson or part of it on there. And it deals with the fact that the, the generation that, that Christ came to, the religious leaders of the day, rejected him as Messiah. And so they are going to have to acknowledge the sin of their forefathers and repent of it. And in Hosea 5 and 15, I'll just read this to you. This is, this, I gave you several verses before, but in Hosea 5 and 15, it says, I will again return to my place until they acknowledge their offense and seek my face, for in their affliction they will earnestly seek me. This is God speaking through the prophet Hosea 5.15. So it says, I will again return to my place. To return means you have to have come. The first time, right? You can't return home if you never left home. So when did God leave home? When the word became flesh, okay? And so he says, I'm going to return again to my place, his father's house, until they, speaking of his people, acknowledge their offense and seek my face for in their affliction, that, and that's key, they will earnestly seek me. And I mentioned that the tribulation, one of the key points of the tribulation is to turn Israel back to God. And the last half of the tribulation is focused 
the Antichrist and his kingdom is coming against the Jewish people because he knows that the requirement will be that the leaders of Israel who rejected Christ in his first coming must publicly repent and cry out for him to come again. So the enemy says, if I can destroy the Jews off the face of the earth, I can stop the coming of Christ back to earth. Okay? I know that may be new for some of you, but I've taught it in depth. Uh, the DVD out there about anti-Semitism uh, deals with it extensively about this very thing. So it's in this time, in fact, the last three days of the tribulation period, the leaders of Israel look to the scriptures, they realize their mistake, they call upon the nation to, to repent, and, and the Bible says that they must call unto him or look unto him as one who mourns for their own child. In other words, they've realized what they've done wrong and they call upon God and that's what the Bible says that a nation is born in a day. In other words, it's born again. It's regenerated in a day. The nation of Israel is saved and, and Christ comes back because the Bible tells us that if God did not um, intervene, if he did not cut short, the Bible says, those days, the very elect would be destroyed. And it's not that God's cutting it short, it's just that it's on God's timeline. If God had pushed it out further, that the enemy would destroy all of the Jews off the face of the earth. So Christ comes back. And so Christ comes back and he delivers Israel from being wiped out. Now, when Jesus comes back to earth, there's a number of things that take place, okay? In Daniel chapter 12, verse 11 and 12, this is where I've talked about this. There is a 75-day period of time before the 1,000 years begins. How do we know that? Because we know that the last, we know the seven year period of time is based on the Jewish calendar. And it's 1260 days is the first half, 1260 days is the last half. And yet it says in Daniel 12, 11 and 12, blessed are those who survived the 1,335 days. So if you take that 1,335 from 1260, there's 75 days that are unaccounted for on there. And he said, blessed are those who, who live through that, who see that, okay? So what does that mean? Well, there's a number of things that take place. The first thing is the false prophet and the Antichrist are going to be cast alive into the lake of fire. The Antichrist being the that very thing, the antithesis of Christ. In other words, and I mentioned before that just as there is a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the last days there's, there's a false Father, there's a false Son, and a false Holy Spirit. How do we know that? In Genesis 3.15, um, God tells the serpent, he said, for the seed of the woman will be at enmity with your seed, okay? So, and he's saying, and, and he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. So he's speaking to Satan. He's saying the seed of the woman, who's the seed of the woman? Jesus. He said, he will, he will, he will be at enmity with your seed. 
So there is going to be an offspring of, the, of Satan who will be the Antichrist. And the false prophet, the Bible says, gives power unto the Antichrist that he is able to perform signs and wonders to deceive the people. What was it that happened to Jesus when he came out of the wilderness, out of the water? He was baptized and the Spirit came on him. And it was then that he began to do miracles. So we're going to see, we're going to see a false trinity in the very last days. And so the false prophet is the Antichrist. And uh, I mean, the false prophet is, is the um, one who gives power to the Antichrist. The Bible says that the two of them, when Christ comes back, they will be cast alive into the lake of fire. According to Revelation 19 and 20, the Antichrist is actually killed at the second coming of Christ, but it says he's cast alive into the lake of fire. Now, it's interesting because we learn during the tribulation, if you remember, that when he's trying to gain control, he's trying to gain power from the 10 kings or the 10 regions, that he goes into battle, he kills two of the kings, but at some point he is killed and then he is resurrected and the kings that are still ruling the earth are the regions of the earth. They give their power under him because they think, who can beat this guy? He's been resurrected, okay? But he's been resurrected to die. I mean, just as Lazarus was resurrected, others that Jesus raised from the dead, they died again. They didn't live in a, they didn't have a glorified body. They were brought back to life and flesh. And so for someone to be cast alive into the lake of fire and he's dead means he has to have been resurrected. And that necessitates this resurrection of him. And so there is a first resurrection, which we talked about, uh, about the rapture of the church. And if there's a first, that means there has to be a second, right? Have you ever heard anybody say, my first point is, and then they never make another point? Drives you crazy. Don't say that because you can't have a first without a second. You can have a, first, a, a, a second and no third, but you, you can't say my first point is, and then never go on to a second point. You know, I mean, that's <clears throat> just the way it is. So think about this. The first resurrection, the rapture of the church, and those who are dead in, the Christ, in Christ are raised from the dead, right? And we who are alive are changed in the twinkling of an eye. And so the first resurrection is for believers only. The second resurrection is for unbelievers, okay? In other words, that second resurrection is going to be here at the end of this thousand year period of time. And those who are dead, who were not raised unto life over here, they're going to be raised here and stand before God at the great white throne judgment. Okay? So there's a first resurrection. There's a second resurrection. First one's for believers. Second one's for unbelievers. The first stage of the first resurrection has already happened. When did it happen? When Jesus was raised from the dead. Because what does the Bible declare? He is the first fruits of the first resurrection, right? Remember, even when Jesus died and the earthquake happened, it says, and many graves opened up 
But no one came out until Christ came forth first because he is the first fruits of the first resurrection. So in the same way that Jesus Christ was the first fruits of the first resurrection, the Antichrist will be the first fruits of the second resurrection. Okay? Now, let's take it a step further. Just as there's been approximately 2,000 years between the resurrection of Jesus, the first fruits, and the rest of the people for the first resurrection, there will be a 1,000 year period of time between the first fruits of the second resurrection, the Antichrist, and the resurrection of all unbelievers. So you follow me? Right? Okay. You want me to go back over it again? <laughs> first resurrection's for believers. Second resurrection is for unbelievers, right? The first stage of the first resurrection is what? The first fruits of Jesus Christ being raised from the dead. The, second, the first st stage of the second resurrection is going to be what? The Antichrist who is killed uh, when Christ comes back will be raised from the dead. He will be the first fruits of the second resurrection. There's a 2,000 year period of time right now uh, between when, when Christ came out of the grave and, and when, when, whenever that time is that he takes us up to heaven, but there's this period of time. And there's going to be a period of time between when the Antichrist is thrown, uh, raised from the dead and thrown into the lake of fire, and when the dead, in, uh, the wicked, will be raised from the dead, resurrected, and they will stand before God. So anyway, I just thought I'd throw that all together for you. Maybe that's confusing, but the false prophet and the Antichrist are going to be the first things that are going to happen. They're going to be thrown alive into the lake of fire. Remember, we're talking about when Christ comes back, right here, at the second coming, there's going to be a thousand-year period of time, but Daniel tells us that there's a 75-day window in here, and there's a whole lesson on that uh, in the study guide and the DVDs and stuff like that. But anyway, um, I'm just trying to show you some of the highlights of the things that are going to take place. So in that 75-day period, um, there are things, in other words, Christ is coming back to set up his kingdom. It's going to be a thousand years long, but there's 75 days that are there for a reason. How many of you know God just doesn't make mistakes? There's 75 days, and it's there for a reason. So the first thing is the Antichrist and the false prophet are going to be cast alive in the lake of fire. The second thing is Satan and all of his demons, the kingdom of darkness, according to Revelation 20, verse 1 and 3, tells us that he is going to be bound into the abyss or the bottomless pit. When Christ comes back in this bottomless pit right here, Satan and every demonic spirit, whatever, they're going to be bound here for 1,000 years. There's an angel that comes down and locks them away for a 1,000-year period of time. This is a temporary place of confinement for fallen angels and demons and could go into a lot more things. In fact, in my study on talking about this period of time, there's actually a set, another place for the demons. It's like Satan is bound in one place and angels in one place and demons in another place. But we're not going to get into all that kind of stuff. We're just looking at an overview. Um, uh, the purpose is that they shouldn't. Why are they being bound? So that they can no longer do the work 
of deception among the nations. So for a thousand years, plus a few days at the front end, because we don't know when, you know, but probably when he first comes back, that's one going to be. Antichrist is going in the lake of fire, but Satan's not going there yet. He's going to be bound for a thousand years in this bottomless pit and every demon of hell, okay? And what is their goal? What is their purpose? To deceive the people, deceive the nations, okay? To follow him and not follow God. So he's going to be bound for a thousand years and they will not be able to work. The next thing that takes place, once the Antichrist is gone, the false prophet is gone, and Satan is bound, there is what is known as the judgment of the nations or the judgment of the Gentile nations. Israel is being judged in tribulation. The Gentile nations are going to be judged during this seven, eight, five-day period of time. This is mentioned in the Old Testament, but we're probably more familiar with it in Matthew 25, where Jesus talks about it. Joel chapter 3 talks about it, but in Matthew 25, we, 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 we've probably heard it as the judgment of the sheep and goat nations. How many of you have heard that phrase before? Okay. Um, all of the Gentiles that survived the tribulation and the campaign of Armageddon. Now remember, I said that in that tribulation period, three-fourths of the world population will die. From the pestilences, from the plagues, from the judgments, from the war, from everything else that goes on, three-fourths of the world population is going to be destroyed. Those that survive the tribulation those that survived through the campaign of Armageddon are now going to be judged based upon how they treated Israel during the tribulation period. And the judge is going to be Jesus Christ, the righteous. And the basis of judgment is going to be anti-Semitism or pro-Semitism during the tribulation period. Go back and read Matthew 25 again. And, and, and Jesus talks about this in the context of it. We hear it many times preached in church about, you know, um, when you, if, if you visited one in jail, if you've given food to this one or gave a cup of cold water to this one. And all of those things are good and they're all apropos, okay? But in the context that Jesus was teaching, the people said, what are going to be the signs of the times of your coming? That's what we want to know. And so Jesus was talking about this, and he talks about the nations, how they treated. He said, when you did this to the least of my brethren, you did it to me. So if you did evil to the least of my brethren, he said, you did it to me. If you did good to the least of my brethren, you did it to me. Who are the brethren of Christ? The Jews. So the judgment of the sheep and goat nations are going to be based upon their treatment and attitude towards the Jewish people and the Jewish nation during this horrible time of tribulation on the earth. And the sheep nations will be those who treated them well, and the goat nations will be those who were evil. And, and you can go back and read, and they are judged at that point, okay? Another thing that's going to take place and again, this is not in sequential order. I'm just telling you things that are going to happen 
when Christ first comes back to earth. And that's why I think there's a 75-day period of time because there's a number of things before that need to be established before you set up a kingdom. For example, in our nation, uh, maybe it's not a good example, but in our nation, in our presidential election system, when someone is elected president, there is a period of time before inauguration, right? Because there needs to be transition. There needs to be teams put together. There needs to be uh, design. There needs to be um, process to all of that. Now, we think God doesn't need any of that. But again, he's coming into our world that has been run under man's government for several thousands of years. And now he's about to establish his kingdom. And you don't just snap your fingers and it's going to be done because he's dealing with men. Uh, and when I say men, I'm talking about the human race. Okay. And so uh, one of the other things that's going to happen is not only just the judgment of the nations, but there is going to be the resurrection of Old Testament saints. Now, if you remember when I taught on the rapture of the church, I made the statement that the rapture of the church is for the bride of Christ. It's his church. And the church does not include Old Testament saints. Um, and, and I can give you several examples, but Isaiah 26 and 19, Daniel 12 and 2, and many other ones. The millennial kingdom, the thousand-year kingdom, is going to be inhabited with the sheep nations or Gentile nations. And this they will include living Israel, in other words, the Jews that survived that period of time, and resurrected Israel, okay? So there's going to be a resurrection of Old Testament saints. The Bible speaks of those who are uh, part of the bridegroom, and then he speaks of those who are friends of the bridegroom. John the Baptist, when they asked him, they said, are you the one that we're expecting? Are you, are you the one we're supposed to be looking for? He said, I am not he. He said, I am a friend to him. I am a, his friend. I'm his friend to his to the bridegroom. I'm, I, I'm not the one you're looking for. I am a friend to him. And that's what he was relating to. He said, that is my official position. I'm not the prophet. I'm not the Messiah. I am a friend to him. And so the resurrection of Old Testament saints, and there's, there's a lot of scripture about that in the Old Testament. And, and so the millennial kingdom will not only include those who pass the judgment of the sheep and goat nations, but it will include living Israel and resurrected Israel, okay? Then there's going to be also the resurrection of tribulation saints. And uh, I've mentioned the fact that the church is raptured. Um, and again, my version, my belief from Scripture of the rapture is not an escapism mentality because there's nothing in the Bible that says that you will escape trouble. In fact, Jesus said in this world, you will have tribulation. You're going to have trouble. We don't know when the rapture of the church will take place. It could happen at any moment. It could happen five days from now, five hours from now, five years from now, 50 years from now. But there's a number of things that have to take place before the tribulation period can take place. And so a lot of bad theology from novels and movies and stuff has been put out there because they, say, they show the rapture of the church takes place and within like 72 hours there's a worldwide dictator. Everybody's got to take the mark of the beast and all that kind of stuff. And that's just not biblical. 
In fact, the mark of the beast doesn't even come into play until three and a half years into the tribulation when the Antichrist goes into the Jewish temple and defiles it and declares himself to be God and demands that you worship him. It doesn't even happen until then. The first three and a half years, he says he's going forth to conquer and to conquering and to conquer. In other words, he's going forth in a place of power, but he's going forth to grab more power. He's going forth first to become a political world leader. Then he's going to place himself as a world religious leader. Okay. And so the resurrection of those saints who are going to be killed during the tribulation um, is, is going to take place at this time. Now, again, people, people read and they see the word saints um, and they go, so, so the rapture could not have taken place. But you, they need to understand something. Tribulation saints are different than the church saints, okay? They are those who have come after, but they have received the message after. In fact, I've stated this several times because one of the falsehoods that's preached so many times in church, well, I shouldn't say so many times because very few churches even talk about end times or anything like that. But I, I remember growing up hearing preachers on the radio, preachers on TV, preachers in pulpits preach that when the rapture takes place and the church is taken away, the Holy Spirit is taken out of the world. But that cannot be true. Because we see it clearly in scripture that one of the reasons for tribu tribulation is a worldwide revival. And God anoints 144,000 Jews to go forth preaching the message of the kingdom. And we see just a few verses later, millions of people who have responded to that message. And no man comes to the Father except the Spirit of God draws him. And so then we see in Revelation 6, we see the souls of those who are under the altar and they were beheaded and martyred. And it says, how long, O Lord, before you, you avenge our blood upon those who have taken our lives? And Jesus says, until your brethren. And, and in other words, until the rest are, are, are saved and, and their time has been done. But in the meantime, just know that it's, go, it's going to be taken care of, okay? And so there is going to be a resurrection of tribulation saints. How do we know that? Because they're going to be killed. In fact, the Bible says the majority of them will be beheaded for the cause of Christ. Now, I have to tell you, for many years, I used to think that's just a symbolic way of saying being killed, but it, I remember several years ago when all of a sudden, you know, ISIS and all these groups came online. And the next thing you know, they're, they're videoing and broadcasting the beheading of Christians and people. And I'm thinking, whoa, this has taken on a whole new idea, a whole new meaning that this could be, could be a part of what's going on in the last days. Um, but they're going to be killed during the tribulation period. And during that 1,000-year kingdom on earth, when, when Christ comes back and establishes his kingdom, the Bible says there are, there are actually three groups, but there's two main groups of people who are going to co-reign with Christ, okay? It's going to be those believers who were resurrected at the rapture of the church or translated, and that they, they have stood before the judgment seat of God, and they have received their rewards, 
If you remember, when I taught on the judgment seat of God, I talked about the fact that we're not standing before God concerning our salvation, but we're standing before God concerning what we have done in the body since coming to Christ, how faithful we have been. And the things that we have done that have eternal value are like gold and silver and precious jewels, the Bible says. But the things that have temporal value, earthly value, that no eternal value are like wood, hay, and stubble. And the fire of God is going to be applied to all of it. And, and, and that determines our place in the kingdom of God during this place of reign, ruling and reigning with him. And remember, I talked about reigning is position and ruling has to do with judgments. Because we're going to see in just a minute that in the millennial kingdom, even with Christ here on earth, that mankind still has an Adamic nature that is prone to sin, even without a devil. Come on. Without a devil, we have a nature that tends to go that way. And there will be things that need to be governed and they'll need to be those who rule and reign with Christ. So we'll have positions. That's what the reigning that is, is. And ruling has to do with judgment. When a court hands down a, a ruling, it's their judgment towards you or against you, whichever way it is, okay? So there's going to be two main groups, if I can put it that way. There's three groups, but two main groups. And the first one is those who have stood before the judgment seat of Christ, been raptured, changed, resurrected, and, and they've received their garments. That's what the Bible says, that the righteous acts of the saints are the, are the, is the garment for, for the wedding, okay? But then there's going to be the resurrected martyrs of the tribulation because the Bible says that together... We and those who were killed, the martyrs who have died during the tribulation, the saints who have died that have but now resurrected, we will rule and reign together with Christ. Okay? Clear as mud, right? And then there's something else that's going to take place. And this is a greatly misunderstood part, but there is going to be a marriage feast of the Lamb. Okay, the church is the bride. The Old Testament and tribulation saints make up the friends of the bridegroom. That's what the Bible says. There has already been a wedding, and now the wedding feast can take place. Let me go back and talk about this for just a minute. I told you that once we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, our works are judged, we receive our garment, our wedding garment, and then there is a wedding that takes place. And I used the, the teaching of, from the first century um, Judaism from that day that Jesus talked about. And at a wedding, the only ones invited to the wedding would be immediate family, and maybe a few close friends. That's it. It was a closed wedding. And then, after that ceremony was done, the bride and groom would go into the chuppah, which is the room or the addition or the house that the, the, bride, the groom had built. And Jesus has gone there now to prepare a place for us, John says. And they would go in after the ceremony the husband and wife would go in and lock themselves in that 
addition, the room, whatever it may be, uh, for seven days. And, and it was there that they would consummate marriage, but it was there that they would spend those precious moments of intimacy with one another. In other words, they've, they've been separated all this time. They've been betrothed all this time. Now is the time that they get to be with one another. How unique that special that is. And that it is one week, okay? And remember, the Bible says that there is a, that 70 weeks, according to Daniel, were, were, were spoken concerning the Jewish people. And 69 of those 70 weeks have taken place. And that each week, it is seven years, right? So think about it. There's one week left. That's a seven-year period of time. And there's a wedding going to be taking place. And the, and the tradition is the husband and wife stay in that addition, that house, that room, whatever it is that's been built for one week, for seven days. And then they come out and they are presented as husband and wife to everybody. And what do we have at the second coming? We have Christ coming forth, and behind him we have his bride being revealed to the world. Okay? And so this is what's taking place. And so once the wedding in a Jewish ceremony, once the wedding took place, invitations would be sent out. And people would begin to gather so that when the bridegroom and bride came out of that room, out of that house, out of that addition, out of the chuppah, when they would come out, they would be there for the feast. And those invitations went out to all the people. Everybody and anybody got an invitation if they even, even had any kind of relationship or knew who they were. So there has to be a wedding feast. But the wedding feast has to be with those who are not part of the bride. So when Christ comes back, somewhere in the 75-day period of time, there is going to be a wedding feast celebration here on earth. And they've been resurrected. And now, and now that those Old Testament saints and the, the, uh, have been resurrected, they are now invited to come as friends of the bridegroom to the feast to celebrate his wedding to his bride. Okay? I know some of this may be totally new for some of you, but I'm telling you, it's, it's all planned out. It's, it's an incredible, incredible thing. So once that takes, and, and there are many um, scholars, biblical scholars who think that maybe the 75-day period or a portion of that 75-day, I personally think it's just a portion of the 75 days, is the festival or feast, the wedding feast that launches the kingdom into that 1,000-year reign. So Christ comes back with his bride, and he comes back for, to establish several things, but one is he's not ignoring his bride. He's saying, look at my precious bride. Look at my bride, and come and be welcome at the celebration feast.
So the wedding is separate from the feast. I know a lot of people probably never heard that, but I can show you over and over again through scripture and first century Judaism and even to this day, an Orthodox wedding, Jewish wedding, how that goes about. And so once the wedding feast is done and all these other events have taken place, the millennial kingdom of 1,000 years is established. And there are certain characteristics of that. And I'll just quickly go through some of those for you. One of them is universal knowledge. And, and what I mean by that, the Bible says in Isaiah 11 and 9, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In other words, there is gonna be a universal knowledge, a, awareness of, of Christ. He's gonna be here on earth, not some fictitious, mystical, whatever. He's physically coming and establishing his kingdom on earth. And it says, and there will be a knowledge of him as the waters cover the sea. Universal knowledge. There's going to be a universal religion. It says, for the, from the rising of the sun even to the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And every place incense shall be offered to my name in a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. That's in Malachi 1 and 11. In Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16 to 17, the Bible says that each year the nations of the earth will send representatives to Jerusalem to come and bow and worship the Lord Jesus Christ there. And the Bible says that if any nation... Uh, does not send representation each year um, in, in this, this, I don't know if it's going to be a festival or what it's going to be, but if they do not send representatives who come to worship God and acknowledge who he is on his throne, the Bible says that that nation will be void of rain for one year. You think, well, isn't God kind of twisting their arm? <laughs> God's really trying to just say, I'm worthy of being honored and worshiped. And if you don't think so, watch what happens. I control the rain. I control the sun. I control it all. So anyway, there's going to be universal knowledge. There's going to be a universal religion or a system of faith, if I could put it that way, there's going to be universal peace. And while there will be differences among nations, because again, not everybody's going to die in the tribulation period. There will be many who will live through the tribulation and, and go into the millennial kingdom just like you and I are right now. And, so, and they'll be from every nation under the sun. So there will, there will be differences among nations that will arise, and such dif but such differences will no longer be settled by war. In fact, the Bible says they will beat their, uh, uh, you know, beat their weapons into plowshares. They, in other words, there's no need for it anymore, okay? And so they, the, the, how will the differences be decided? They will be decided by the word of God. And that's where we come in, ruling and reigning with Christ. We will rule and reign. And it will be on national levels, international levels, um, state levels, local levels. You know, I mean, we, ha that we have all that now. God's going to establish it. In fact, um, in, this, in the teaching syllabus, you'll see that 
in the government that Jesus is going to set up, there's actually two branches of government. One is for the Jews and one is for the Gentile nations. But he's over both of them. Okay? So this is where the ruling and reigning comes in. And there's going to be a number of other changes that are going to take place during this thousand year period of time. In fact, God makes some um, geographical and physical changes in the earth. Read Isaiah 65, 17 through 25. And I want to, because I want to point something out here, because if you read that, you read about the new heavens and the new earth. But then you go over to Revelation 21 and 22, and you read about the new heavens and the new earth. And I know for years, I thought they were the same thing. But it's not the same thing. And, and my point is that Isaiah describes a renovation of the present heaven and earth. In other words, how many of you have ever renovated a house or renovated a room or renovated, you know, something? Well, I don't know what else you would renovate, but I mean, you could renovate something. In other words, there's this something existing and you renovate it into something newer, okay? That's what Isaiah is describing, that there's a renovation of the present heavens and earth. But Revelation doesn't speak of a renovation. It speaks of a brand new heaven and earth. So during this thousand-year period of time, there's going to be geographical and um, physical changes that are on the earth, many different changes that, that are going to take place. In fact, I mentioned the fact that when Christ comes back and he stands on the Mount of Olives, at that point when he does rise up the Mount of Olives and he stands there victorious, having defeated the, the armies of, in the campaign of Armageddon, the Bible says that the earth splits open and a valley is created and, and there's ge just geographical upheavals because if you read in Ezekiel about the the um, the temple that is going to be built during the thousand year period of time, it could not be built on the temple mount now because the temple is going to be like, the temple area is going to be 50 miles square. And the temple mount's nowhere near. You couldn't, you couldn't build a one mile building on top of that thing. So there's going to be just like when, when God hits the earth, when Christ comes down, the weightiness of his presence, the glory of his presence is going to bring upheavals and changes. Mountains are good. This is where the psalm says that mountains melt like wax at the presence of God. I mean, it, it's, there's going to be these incredible changes that are going to take place on the earth. Um, Isaiah, one of the other things about the thousand year period of time is that Isaiah 65 and 20 discusses life and death in the kingdom. Now somebody will say, well I thought during the millennial kingdom nobody dies. That's not what the Bible says. It does teach us some unique things. First, it teaches us that um, there will no longer be any infant mortality in the, in the millennial kingdom. It, it's very clear about that. Everyone who is born in the kingdom will reach a certain age. Now, some people are going, what do you mean born? Did I not say there will be many who survive the tribulation and the campaign of Armageddon 
who are considered part of the sheep nations. The goat, those who are part of the goat nations, the Bible says, with the breath of his mouth, they're killed. And they're in hell, waiting for the final judgment. But those who treated God's people right, they will go into the millennial kingdom. But one of the unique things is that many of the things that have, are on the earth now, the curse that's on the earth now, many of those things are going to be lifted for that period of time until, it, until the eternal perfect state is, is established forever and ever. So there'll be no longer any infant mortality. So in other words, there's going to be people who are going to be living in flesh. Now you and I are going to have glorified bodies. Okay? I don't plan on living here on earth. That may be my workplace, but I'm going back to the Father. You know, and I don't have to take a bus or Uber or whatever. You know, I've got a glorified body. Jesus just went, boom, he's gone, and boom, he's over here. And in the same way, we'll be able to do that. And I'm not not making light of that, but there will be those who are still here on earth. They'll be working jobs. They'll be plowing fields. They'll be raising families. They'll be doing all of that. So there's going to be a repopulation. In fact, what was the very first thing that God told Adam and Eve? Replenish the earth. You know, bring forth children. Bring forth life upon the earth. So there are going to be people who are going to be born during that time. And the Bible says there'll be no more infant mortality, but they will reach a certain age. And the, the age that they were guaranteed to reach is the age of 100. I know that sounds crazy, but the Bible says that the age of a child will be 100 years. And, and that verse in the scripture there talks about the fact that it limits people dying at the age of 100 to those who are yet unconverted in other words you will be able to live for a hundred years and decide whether or not Christ who is physically on the earth sitting on David's throne in Jerusalem ruling and reigning in glory you will have a hundred years to decide whether to accept him as ruler and reigner the person who reigns in your heart When you turn 100, if you reject him, you will die. You will die. That's what the Bible says. So that's why it says the age of a child shall be 100 years of age. Now we think about the fact that a child, when it comes to that child reaches the age of accountability, the age of understanding that they are lost and they need Jesus. And that can, I've seen that in children four and five, and I've seen that in children that are eight, nine, ten before they have that understanding. So, but here it says you'll, they'll, be a, they'll be guaranteed age to 100 years of age. Okay? So there will be death during the millennial kingdom. And if they accept Christ, genuinely accept Christ, and you're not going to pull the wool over on God... Right? So if you're 100 days in one day, you saved. (laughs) I mean, really. Um, The government, I mentioned this earlier, there's going to be a a theocratic form of government. And what I mean simply is that there's going to be an absolute 
monarchy, monarchy, and that um, there's going to be a definite chain of command and lines of authority. So in a monarchy, there's what? A king or a queen, right? There's a king. And who is the king? Jesus. And so he is, he is the Messiah to the Jews, but he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And I mentioned that there'll be two different distinct branches of government, and, and that's in the teaching syllabus and everything else. Uh, there'll be one branch as far as to the Jewish nation, and there'll be one branch governing the Gentile nations. And during the time of that thousand-year period, the most ideal conditions will exist on the earth, the best since the fall of Adam. It's going to be incredible. It won't be perfect by any situation. Sin and death, though greatly reduced, will, will not be eliminated. And because there will be a great number of those who have not been converted or, as the Bible talk, talks about, have been regenerated by the Spirit of God. They will be alive at the time to the close of the millennial kingdom. Now imagine how many people having children in a time where crime is virtually nil, right? I mean, there's, there may be discussions and problems and issues, but there's no satanic force. There's no demonic oppression or anything. They're bound, okay? And in 1,000 years, how many people will be born and grown during that period of time? And so when the end of that 1,000 years comes, the earth is going to be filled the nations of the earth are going to be filled with people who have been born during at least the last century of that millennial kingdom, if not longer. So it's after this 1,000 years of ideal conditions and environment that the millennial kingdom, the messianic kingdom, um, ends with one last test for man. It's a final probationary period for man and the last opportunity to be saved. And the millennial kingdom will end when Satan is loosed out of the bottomless pit. He's been bound here and all of his demons, imagine a thousand years, he's, he's thinking when I get out, come on now, He's, he's designing. He's, he's, he, he may be bound, but he knows what's going on. How, you say, well, how do you know? Well, I remember the rich man over here, remember, who was in hell. And he, he looked up and saw Lazarus and, and said, send someone to warn my brothers. Send someone to warn them. He was, there was an awareness, but there was nothing he could do. I believe Satan will have that ability there. He'll be aware of it. But at the end of this thousand-year period of time, and there's no specific point in there that says this has to happen or whatever, but Satan is going to be loosed. And the purpose of him being loosed is to go forth and to deceive the nations in one 
final act. And it's recorded in Revelation chapter 20, verse 7 through 10. He's going to be released from the confinement of his abyss. Imagine having been locked up for so long. The, the vengeance and the ferocity that he is going to have as he's being loosed out of the pit and he is going to do what he does so well and he's going forth to try and deceive and bring deception of the nations of the Gentiles in the earth. Now the Jews are not going to buy into it because they understand Christ as Messiah. That's my personal belief. But the Gentile nations, they're like, that's a Jewish king. He's not one of us. And Satan comes forth. All of his demons and hordes of demons go forth and try to deceive. Now, understand something. You and I can, can understand it a little bit because we battle constantly against spiritual forces, right? The Bible says that, that, we, that, that we, we battle against what? Spiritual darkness, principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. We're aware of it. Take, a, take generations of people who have never experienced Satan, never experienced darkness, oppression, deception of, of demonic influence of any kind. And all of a sudden, that is loosed upon the face of the earth. How many of you think that they're going to, many are going to fall prey to that? They've never experienced that before. And so, by this time, there's a great number of unbelievers, those who have yet to choose Christ on the earth. They're a hundred years age or under a hundred years old and the work of deception is going to be massive and the Bible says there's going to be a worldwide revolt and eventually, and, and this is while Christ is still on earth. This is incredible for me to try and even picture this, but it says a worldwide invasion of Israel because Christ has his throne where? In Jerusalem. And the armies of the world will gather together in one last hurrah, if I can put it that way, to surround Jerusalem and, and try and bring down Christ as the king on the throne. But the Bible says that once these armies arrive at the mountain of Jehovah's house, the invading forces are going to be quickly dispensed with fire out of heaven, destroying them massively and suddenly. And it is at this point that Satan, the instigator of this revolt, will be placed into the lake of fire. So a thousand year period of time from the time the Antichrist and false prophet are cast alive into the lake of fire, now Satan is cast alive into the lake of fire, his final abode. And with this final revolt, the millennial kingdom will come to an end. And at the end of this, once this is all done, there's a transfer of power that takes place. And it's written about in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 through 26. It says, then comes the end when he, speaking of Christ, hands over the kingdom to God the Father. When he has brought to an end all rule and authority and power. Listen. 
For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be eliminated is death. This can only happen after every enemy of mankind is abolished, and there is no longer any challenge to God's rule, God's authority, and God's power. So it's only after Satan is loosed, his demons are loosed, and, and the nations of the earth buy into that deception, and they are destroyed, and Satan and his hordes of demons are thrown into the lake of fire, not back into hell, because the Bible tells us hell is cast into the lake of fire. And so the, the Bible says that the last enemy of man is not Satan, the last enemy is, is death itself. It was Satan that instigated and brought death into the world through his deception. Death was introduced. So it's only when Satan is finally rid out of the world that deception and death can finally be eliminated. And it should be remembered that death will exist in the, in the kingdom, the thousand-year kingdom. It's only after Satan is in his final revolt, he's confined into the lake of fire, and that, that death can, that he can be finally abolished. He's done. He's finished. There's no more him coming forth. He's done. All of his demons, all of his fallen angels, they're all gone. And Jesus then says, he hands the kingdom over to his father. He said, it is finished. He transfers control to the father because he's finally defeated the last enemy of mankind. And it's at this point that the second resurrection, or what is often known as the great white throne judgment, takes place. Now, since Christ died and was raised, Again, I mentioned there are two resurrections. The first resurrection is for the righteous in Christ. The second resurrection is for the resurrection of the dead, the unrighteous, okay? And this judgment is the final judgment of all people who have died outside of Christ, all right? The place of judgment is in heaven. And this is important. I think it's important. It's not here on earth. You say, well, Christ's kingdom's here on earth. Why wouldn't he just have the judgment there? There's a reason. I, I, and I'm going to share that with you in just a minute. Because God is going to let those who have been in hell view and see and experience the beauty and the splendor of heaven for a time. Only to be cast alive into the lake of fire. Revelation 20 says, Then I, the Apostle John, saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Now this throne, this throne is the same throne back before time where God was before the creation of the world. That throne right there. God always was, and God will always be. And he doesn't swap thrones. He doesn't renovate heaven. <laughs> That's his throne. 
It's the same throne that caused Lucifer to rebel against God, who said, I will ascend to the heavens and establish my throne above the throne of God. It's the same throne in Revelation 4 and 5 that John saw that describes the worship and the praise of the saints all around it. It's the same throne in Revelation 6 during the Great Tribulation that says the skies peel back like a scroll and the people on the earth see God in his glory. And they call out for the rocks to fall on them and hide them from him who sits on the throne. It's the same throne that each believer will stand before God and give an account of their life for the rewards and position in the coming government during the kingdom of God on earth and it's the same throne that all the resurrected dead will stand before to give an account for their life it's the same throne it's the same throne now there's something that's going on during this Satan has been loosed he goes forth to deceive the nations, the armies of the earth come against Christ. And at that point, God destroys them and Satan is cast into the lake of fire. And those who have been in banishment, who have died outside of Christ through all the history of time, they are brought into heaven for the great white throne. And the books are going to be opened at that time. But while that's going on, something else is taking place. Can I tell you, God is a great multitasker. He doesn't walk in the room and go, oh, what was I doing? Why did I come in here? You know, He knows what's going on. And what's going to take place is all those on earth, those, the wicked who have died, all of those are going to be raised up, resurrected, the souls of them who, who have been in hell, their bodies resurrected, and they're going to be brought before the throne of God, God is going to make a new heaven and a new earth. That is going to be taking place while this last judgment on, in heaven is taking place. Okay? In Revelation 20 and 12 it says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. The book of life. Which is interesting because it's the book of life that is opened at the judgment seat of Christ. And it's there that if your name, you don't, you're not going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ if your name's not in the book of life. And, and what did the disciples come back all excited about Jesus. Even demons are subject to us in your name. Jesus said, don't rejoice over that, but rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. <laughs> but it's the same books, that same book of life that is going to be open. And, and, and look, before that time, my name was not in the book of life. My name was in a book of deeds that I had done. And I was going to be found guilty before God. But when the blood of Christ was applied to my life, those things were, were vanished. And my name was written in the book of life. And now a new record is being recorded there. That same book of life records my life. Every day that you and I wake up, we are recording in that book of life under us. We have a place in that book. And it will determine 
our faithfulness and, and, and how we've used the gifts and how we've been faithful to God in this life since coming to know Christ. And it will determine our place in his government. But it will be the same book that will be found over at the great white throne judgment. Verse 12 says, And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. That means there's other books. See, before Christ, my name was not in the book of life. There was things recorded in other books. All the, the wickedness and the deeds and the, the attitudes and prejudices and everything else were recorded in those books. All the, the wicked things I had done. You say, well, I'm not that bad. In the eyes of a holy God, we're wicked. But my name was blotted out of those books. Because my name was written in the Lamb's book. Thank God for the blood of Christ. Thank God for the mercy of God. But it says all those who are resurrected at that resurrection, they will be judged according not to the book of life. They will be recorded to the things that are in the book. And the book of life, when they look, there's no name. And for the followers of Christ, again, the book of life determines our rewards and positions, but for those at the second resurrection, at the great white throne judgment, their works are a statement of why their sentence is legitimate. Well, don't we, do we usually make excuses for ourselves when we know we're wrong? God, why is God allowing them to come to heaven to not only see that everything they rejected, everything they said was not true, is true. But not only that, they're going to be able to see God somehow is going to play their life back for them. And their, their works recorded in the books, they're not going to be able to deny it. There it is. Will be a statement of why their judgment against them is legitimate. At the second resurrection, the body and the soul and the spirit of the wicked are rejoined and brought into the very presence of God. And when they are found guilty, the Bible says they are cast alive into the lake of fire. And the key that we need to understand is that the lake of fire is not annihilation, but rather a place of eternal torment. There's so many people who are falling for old teachings that have crept back into the church that are demonic. Many famous people, and I'm not going to name them, but they're out there, and they're teaching young people, they're teaching in our churches in America today that God is a God of love, and because God is a God of love, he would never allow anybody to, to be damned forever, to be condemned forever, and that everybody's going to get a do-over at some point. It's not so. Every memory of every person's life will be alive. Every opportunity in their life will be a constant reminder. Every word shared with them about Christ, they will remember. Every time the Holy Spirit tried to draw them to Jesus, they will remember. The, their fleeting moment in heaven will be a constant reminder to them. I've used the example, how many of you have ever learned about a great deal the day after? You know, 
Somebody said, man, that was on sale yesterday, 80% off. You kidding me, man, why didn't I know, right? And you just go around hitting yourself. Man, I wish I had known about that. They're going to have known, they're going to see and hear and know that the judgment against them is legitimate. And the purpose of the judgment is to allow every person their moment before God to give an account for their life. And the second purpose of this judgment will be to, to determine the degree of punishment. Now, many of you probably never heard that, but Jesus taught that there were degrees of punishment. He spoke of cities that he went to, and then he spoke of Gentile cities. And he, he said, woe unto this city. If the works that had been done in you had been done in this city, they would have rejoiced and repented. Because of that, your punishment is going to be greater. Can, can I tell you, having known and having seen and having tasted the glory of heaven and God it's himself, and knowing that you could have had that, you could have, could have been saved from what's standing before you, but because of your rebellious heart, hardness of mind, whatever you want to call it, there's a degree of punishment that comes with that, but there, there's, there's biblical scripture, and I could give you several scriptures, Luke 12, 47 and 48, John 19, 11, Matthew 11, 20 through 24. Jesus taught there were degrees of punishment, weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And that brings us to the final act. After that judgment, all those who are standing there, they will ultimately be thrown into the lake of fire. I hear people all the time say, well, I'm just going to hell because that's where all my friends are. First of all, hell is not a party town. And, and hell is not the final destination. Hell is going to be thrown into a lake of fire. And we're talking about a body that's been resurrected that cannot die. A body that feels pain. A body that's real. If you don't think so, what did Jesus tell Thomas? Put your finger in my hand. Put your hand in my side. Touch me and you'll see that I'm real. The difference is the body is, we are flesh and blood, but a glorified body is flesh and bone. That's what the Bible says. For life is in the blood, but when you have a glorified body, you don't need blood because you have been glorified, brought into a glorified state. So you're talking about those who are going to be resurrected, the wicked who are resurrected, united with their soul and spirit, stand guilty before God, cast alive into a lake of fire where there is eternal torment. There's no thousand years and it's over. There's no probationary period. There's no get out of jail free card. It's forever. And then there's a final act. And it's mentioned in Isaiah 66, 22 to 24. And it says, as the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. From one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. And they will go out. Listen to this. Because I tell people this all the time and they don't believe it. 
and they will go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. Their worm or their spirit will not die, nor will the fire be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. This says that the Bible tells us that the lake of fire will be visible upon the face of the earth from the city of the new Jerusalem, which is now on earth. Now, I've had people go, oh God, that would not be right. That would, that, no, no, God wouldn't do that. But you know what the problem is? We are saying that from where we are now in a human body that is greatly ruled at times by emotion. Right? Can I tell you a secret? I love, I love cooking shows. But when they get that tool out where they start doing this, how many of you know what I'm talking about? What's it called? A mandolin? Huh? Yeah, a mandolin. Where they're just, shh. I either pause it, flip the channel, or fast forward it. Because I can't stand the thought, because I've done that. And take off the end of my finger. Yeah. Yeah, I'm like, no, and see, I'm, 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 I'm moved by that, right? You say, well, how can you not be moved by this? Because we'll have a glorified body. Satan is going to be cast alive into the lake of fire. The victor will be on the throne forever. The new heavens and the new earth will be created. And the new Jerusalem will have come down. And there's a reason for the lake of fire on the face of the earth. You say, well, what is it? The lake of fire is an eternal monument to the righteousness of God's judgment. Have you ever been someplace that had like an eternal flame or something like that to remind you of what was? I remember when I went to Israel and I went through the, the Holocaust Museum. It's horrifying to see what was done. But did you know that every new recruit in the Israeli Defense Force one of the first things they do in their training is they bring them and make them go through the whole Holocaust Museum. It takes hours. And the reason is, this is to be a remembrance of why you're fighting. That this will never happen again on your watch. It is a reminder. That's what the Holocaust Museum is. It's a reminder of what could be. Well, the lake of fire is a monument of God's righteous judgment, and the lake of fire is the memorial unto Christ. As the smoke rises, we will not go, ooh, it's horrible. You know what we will say? Our God is righteous. Our God is holy. Our God has ruled. Our God is a good God. Glory unto him. I know it sounds strange, but that's what it says. He did and paid the price that we could be with him forever. And when the thousand-year kingdom comes to an end, you, did, did you know that the, the messianic kingdom 
is the high point of Old Testament prophecy. The Jews are expecting it. They're looking for the Messiah. The eternal order is the high point of New Testament prophecy. The Jews are looking for when Christ, the Messiah, or when the Messiah comes and rules on the earth. But as Christians, we're, our high point is not when he's just going to rule on earth. We're looking for the new heavens and the new earth. And all that is known about the eternal order, this eternal perfect state is found in Revelation 21 uh, and 1 verses 22 through verse 5. And during the great white throne judgment, the old order of the heavens and the earth are going to be done away. Peter says the heavens are going to melt away. I don't know what it's going to look like. God made an incredible heavens now. I can't imagine what he's going to do. But he, he said the old heaven and the old earth, that's all going to be done. It's going to be completely, he ain't going to renovate it. He's just going to destroy, make a whole new one. And then following the great white throne judgment, there's going to be this creation of this eternal order, eternal perfect state. As Revelation 21, and two, uh, 21 verses 1 and 2 says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and for the first heaven and the first earth are passed away. See, it's not renovated. It's passed away. And the sea is no more. In the new earth, it says, The sea is no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. So in place of the old heavens and earth, there's going to be a new heaven and earth. And there's some certain significant things that are going to be different. And the first one is, the Bible says, there is no sea upon the earth. Now, you may think that's strange, but the oceans were part of the judgment of God upon the first earth. When, and, and, and now they're going to be non-existent in the new earth. Okay? I have people all the time go, well, no, they can't be people going to be living and having kids and all that kind of stuff. Where are they going to put them all? Well, three-fourths of the earth's now covered by water. The Bible says all of a sudden that new earth, I don't know how big it's going to be or if it's going to be the same size or what, I don't know. But all the oceans are going to be dried up, and the Bible says they're going to become fertile ground. So there's a new heaven and a new earth that will need to be created, and the new Jerusalem will not have to be created because it's already present in the third heaven. The Bible says it's going to come down from heaven. God's going to make a new earth and bring this new city, bring this city down. And the city will serve as an eternal home for several groups of people. Not everybody alive when that city comes gets to live in that city. They can visit but they can't stay because that city is going to be inhabited by the entire Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. The angelic host, the church saints, the spirits of just men who, who are made perfect, the Old Testament saints, but they're not mentioned, but you know the tribulation saints, that's their home. And it says three names are given to those who live in the city. The name of God, the name of the city, and Jesus' new name. And two points are made about it. It says the habitation of God will now be with men. 
See, that's God's desire from the beginning. He desired fellowship with Adam. He walked with him in the cool of the day. And, and, and that was his desire. And God says, I will be their God and they will be my people and I will dwell among them. I will, have, I will, I will habitate around them. I will be in the midst of them. So God is going to be there. And then God affirms that the effects of the curse that are recorded in Genesis chapter 3 are going to be removed. What, were the, what was the curse on the old earth? Adam, from now on, guess what? By the sweat of your brow, you're going to have to till the ground and thorns and thistles and all, every kind of weed that there is is going to be the byproduct of your work. What was the curse upon the woman? That from this point on, you'll bring forth children in pain. The Bible says the curse is going to be lifted. And the Bible describes the city. It's 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, and 1,500 miles high. 1,500 miles high. Most satellites that are out in orbit or 200 miles or less. So you have to open the basement windows of the New Jerusalem for satellites to pass through, I guess. I, I don't know. There's, there's really not going to be any need for satellites, is there? I mean, because God's going to be here on earth. I mean, and, and, and the knowledge of God is going to be everywhere. But it says, in addition to the absence of oceans on the earth, there are going to be several other things that are mentioned in Revelation 21 and 22. There's no temple on the new earth. No temple. You know why? There's no need for one. Because the entire Godhead lives in the city. I mean, what was the temple? It was a place for people to come and meet with God. God's living there. I mean... Literally, you'll be able to say, God's in the house. Right? There's no need for sun or moon in the city. I've heard people, preachers, preach this all the time. But sun and moon's going to be done away with. I does not say that. It says there's no need for the sun or moon in the city. Why? Because the light of the glory, the Shekinah glory of God lights the city. What do we need the sun for now and the moon at night? It's, it's lighting, right? The absence of night in the city. People say, God's just doing away with nighttime. It doesn't say that in the Bible. It says there's no night in the city. Why? Because there's no darkness in the city. God's in the city. And the light, the Shekinah glory of the light of God lights and radiates the whole city. The Bible also says that the tree of life is in the midst of the city and it's found in Revelation 22. And it says on either side of the river, there was, a tree, was, there was the tree of life which bore 12 fruits, each yielding its fruit every month. Now stop and think about this. If there was no more night and day and there were no more seasons, then how could it say there would be 12 different fruits, a different fruit every month? It doesn't say there won't be night and day. Why? Because there'll still be people living on the earth outside the city. And God established night and day. 
And it says, and they bore 12 fruits, each yielding fruit, it, uh, yielding a different fruit each month. And the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. And people get confused about that. And they say, well, well I thought sickness was being done away with. The word healing there means the perpetuation of the generations. And, and you say, well, what does that mean? In, in Genesis, the tree of life that was there, why did God drive Adam and Eve out of the garden? Because they had eaten of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. And now they were in a sinful state. They'd been clothed with the glory of God. They were now naked. They were naked before, they just were clothed in the light of God's glory, and they didn't realize it till they sinned. And they go and hide themselves in the bushes, making, you know, some kind of outfit or whatever, right? Okay, and, 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 but the scripture tells us that they, God drove them out of the garden. Why? Because if they were to eat the tree, of, the fruit of the tree of life, they would have lived eternally, in their sin, and there could be no redemption for them. So when God drove them, he didn't drive them out because he was being mean. He said, if they eat that fruit, there is no redemption for them. So he drove them away. And so it was the fruit of the tree of life that gave them life forever. You don't believe that? Genesis 3 and 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So when it talks about the fruit on the tree of life in the city, and that the fruit and the leaves are for the healing. It's the word there is not healing like healing of sickness. It's for, it's the, for the perpetuation of generations. In other words, it's for the eternal living. The tree of life gives life for eternity. And that's what it's talking about. And then there'll be a total absence of the curse in this eternal order. And the residents of the city will include the Lamb of God, all the redeemed of the ages, all who have the name of Jesus on their foreheads, and the rest of the inhabitants of the earth may visit the city, but their home will be someplace else on the earth. God will be in the city. They can come and visit, but they can't stay. They can't move in. Because that city is made for the redeemed that God has chosen for himself. And that, my friends, is a summation of all three lessons. Whew. Like drinking from a fire hydrant, huh? I try to make it clear for you. So who, anybody have any questions or comments or whatever? I knew Bud would have one. What you got, Bud? You want the microphone? Huh? No, I'll use the microphone. Okay. Uh, if, the, if the city is only for the redeemed, how would anybody be on the new heaven and new earth if they're not redeemed? There will, okay, there's going to be those 
who will be alive when Satan is loosed, right? They'll be alive. There will be many who will follow after Satan and they will be destroyed and they will be resurrected to be judged, but there will be those who, who are not judged here who, who do not follow Satan. It does not say that every single person at the end of the thousand years follows Satan. Many of them will, many of them won't. And so there are those who have lived through this period of time and then there are those who have been born and lived through this period of time. Is this making sense? And they're righteous. They've accepted the Lord. But they're still in flesh. They will continue to live. The redeemed will continue to live. But there will be those here who have accepted the Lord, who confessed the Lord as, 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 as the Christ, but they are not part of the church. They are not the redeemed, but they have accepted the Lord in this period of time, and they will continue to live on the earth, but the city, the new Jerusalem, is reserved for the redeemed of God. Does that make sense? Okay. I know it, for a lot of people it's hard to figure out, but if people live through here and they are judged and the sheep nations go into the thousand year period of time and the age of a child is a hundred and people are going to be born all through this time and if you don't accept Christ by a hundred you die, there'll be many people who will will follow after Satan when he's loose, but there'll be those who have accepted Christ. He's here on earth. They see him. They, they recognize him as the King of kings and Lord of lords. But it's, it's different than where we are now. They're not the redeemed. They're not the saved. They're not the, uh, the chosen bride. We are his bride. We, we, we've been judged and we've been married to him. And now we come back as his bride. We've ruled and reigned. Over these people, these people will go into here. Now, I'll answer a question that a lot of people used to ask my mentor all the time. He said, okay, well, all the, all the wicked get brought up to here. Where do all the good people right here go when this whole earth is being done? What did I tell you at the beginning of Bible prophecy? One of the laws of Bible prophecy is what? When the Bible is silent, we should be silent. But my mentor had an answer. He said, how many of you believe in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? He said, they were in the fire. Didn't even smell like smoke. He said, God can renovate this earth. God can recreate a new earth and doesn't even have to move them. I looked at him, the first time I heard him say that, I went, okay. I would just rather say, I don't know. I, I, I really don't know. Because these, these are people with, if I can put it this way, non-glorified bodies. They're still living in flesh. They're, they, they, they've lived all this period, they're in flesh. And you say, but, but the fire will kill them. 
Well, those three guys didn't get burned up. I don't know what happens. God may take them up here to watch. I don't know. I mean, I really don't know. But I thought I'd throw that out there in case somebody was thinking about it. Anybody else? All right. These two young guys on the front rows always got questions, man. They're good. Uh, good questions, too. For the people who are, like, in the New Jerusalem, um, and you said that there won't be water on the earth, how would they survive? The oceans will not exist. But there will be water on the earth. In fact, the Bible says that the tree of life, remember it said that the river that flows out. And if you go back in Revelation, you'll see that under the throne rolls, flows this river that comes out from the throne of God and flows out of the city. And the tree of life is on this bank and water on each side. There is a river flowing out from the throne of God. But there will be fresh water on the earth. But the oceans will be dried up. The oceans covered the earth after the turmoil when Lucifer brought chaos into the earth when he tried to overthrow the throne of God. And the earth was without form and void. And God reestablished land and created the sun and the moon and the stars and the whole creation story as we know it. And, and it says, and the waters covered the earth. There was a violence of water that covered the earth. And so um, God says that curse is going to be lifted. The oceans are going to be lifted, but there'll still be fresh water on the earth. Okay. Anybody else? Got one over here. All these youngsters got their thinking caps on. You forgot. Uh, okay, yeah. Um, so, I am correct on that Satan knows everything about the meanings of each part of the Bible, right? Satan what? Satan knows about, like, What it all means on the Bible, like the Bible. He knows what everything means, right? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. He knows his time is short. But the Bible says that had they known, had Satan known what the plan of God was that was hidden from the foundation of the world, they would have never crucified the king of glory. So to say that he knows everything, he is not omniscient like God is. Um, we give him too much credit in that regard. So he doesn't know everything, but he does know his time is short. And he does know certain things, yes. But to say that he knows everything, I would not be comfortable in saying that because I don't know that God hasn't hidden something from him still. He may know the, un the outline of things, but he may not know the detail of certain things. You know, God gives us an outline. He doesn't fill out in every single detail of every single thing. So I wouldn't be comfortable in saying that he knows everything. I don't know if that kind of throws your question off or we cool? 
Good. Anybody else? Has this helped at all? I know it's been abbreviated, um, but I hope my goal is that it broadens your picture and broadens your understanding, not to knowledge, but that it motivates you to tell people of the love of God. If you can see God's handiwork from the past to the very end, you can't help but see the tapestry of God's love weaved through every event and everything because God so loved the world. That's my goal, that we wake up realizing that each day we have is a gift from God. But every day that we wake up, it's, it may be the last day that we have. The trumpet may sound. We may be gone. Who is it we need to share the love of God with? Who is it we need to tell him about Jesus? Who is it that we are, are, this should shake off our complacency. And that's my goal in teaching this more than anything else is that we walk around and we accept the, the, the mercy and be the thankfulness and, of what God has done, but more than anything else that we, who do I need to pray for? Who do I need to tell? Father, I just pray tonight, right now, in this time for these that are here and those who may be listening, that God, we, we lift up those that, that they've been praying for to come to a saving knowledge of Christ in their lives, of Jesus in their lives. Father, we pray that they break through the spirit of religion and that they come to a place of emptiness within themselves and realize that there, there has to be more. God, you love people so much. You're creating every day as, as a day of mercy to extend to us your grace and your love one more day. What are we going to do with it? God, we're going to stand before you and give an account of our life and our time and our talents that you've given to us and how we use them. Father, in Jesus' name, let us not be complacent. Let us be motivated by the same love that you came after us, that we go after those around us that need to know you. And I pray again, special blessing upon each and every one, especially those who sacrificed each and every time to come out. God, you would do an, an incredible work in their lives. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen and amen.